0: Will you please turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, 1 Peter 3, and we will continue our series in that book, the title of which is on the screen behind me. We want everyone to be able to look at the passage that we'll be considering, so these brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way to the back, just get their attention, and they'll get a copy of the Word of God to you that you can keep as our gift to you. We want everyone to own a copy of Scripture, and we hope you'll be back and bring that with you as we look at God's Word each week. I want to thank the congregation for praying for me while I was away this past weekend. I was with a church in Rockford, Illinois, First Baptist Church there that is recently called a, a new pastor. And they are trying to regroup uh, as a church, determine the direction that God would have them go, and they're seeking uh, advice, counsel on that. And so Saturday evening and then Sunday morning and early afternoon, I spent my time with the saints there and enjoyed my time very much. safe travel, obviously. And I thank you for your prayers, but it is good to be back with the church family here. The church that my mother attended as a girl and at which her father, my grandfather, served as an elder, was still standing and operating when we would visit our relatives in Pikeville, Kentucky, as I was growing up each summer. We'd go to the church on Toller's Creek on Sunday when we were there, and I still remember the sign above the main doorway. It said, the church meets here. And I came to learn that they did that to make clear that the building is not the church. Most of you know that according to Scripture, the church is the body, that is, the people who comprise it. The building, something that in the first century church most churches did not not have, the building is a useful tool, though, for what the church does, but it is not the church. God's people are the church. So when we say things like, when you and and I say them as well, say things like, let's meet at the church, or let's go to church, we're actually using the word incorrectly. But the church as a place is so ingrained in most of us that it's really, really hard for us to shake it. That we fail to see the church as more than a place is also heard in other kinds of statements that we make. Things like, I attend community Bible church. Or we might ask someone, where do you attend? And so I ask you to just pause for a moment and ask yourself how you think of the church. And how important is it to your life and to the mission to which God has called you? To put it another way, how central is the church, do you believe, to our purpose? The Bible teaches that the body of believers, the church, is indispensable to the life not only of the individual believer but also to the carrying out of our collective purpose, something that we call the Great Commission. But not only are views of the church confused by the imprecise thinking and the words that all of us, again I include myself, often use, In addition to that, some have just decided the church does not work and therefore we need a different approach. The role of the church has certainly been diminished in our day. In his book, Exit Interviews, William Hendrick estimates that 53,000 people leave churches every week and never come back. His own comments regarding this trend are alarming. He says that what he calls these backdoor believers have, quote, become quite resourceful at finding ways to meet God apart from a local church, and that those leaving the church behind have often found, again, quoting him, a better way. He notes that, quote, quite often they describe themselves as moving closer to God, but further away from the church. And so what is his message to these dropouts? Quote, I don't blame you for walking out. Well, the Bible has a profoundly, profoundly different view of the church. The Bible says that Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And Jesus and the New Testament know nothing of this roll-your-own approach to our mission. Do you all remember that the night before Jesus was crucified, he met to instruct his first followers, and he gave them a number of comforts and promises But one of the things he told them in that upper room discourse was this, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You all see the one another thing there? Do you see the the people component, the relational component? And then Jesus, the following day, is going to give His life for the church. And then a few days later, He will rise from the grave. And just before ascending back to the Father, He gave those first followers what we call the Great Commission. And as the New Testament unfolds what they did, it's clear that the church, that is God's called out people, were and are crucial to the carrying out of that mission that Jesus gave. In fact, so important is the church to the mission that most of your New Testament is comprised of letters written to churches or to leaders of churches. And 1 Peter, that we've been considering now for these many weeks, is written to God's people, His church, in order for them to live out the mission in their particular setting, which we've seen is a difficult setting because of both government persecution and it's being carried out in the midst of a hostile culture. And far from seeing the fellowship of God's people as ancillary or optional, in the midst of Peter's instruction for us to, in the title of this series, live right in a world that's gone wrong, Peter tells his readers that their interactions with one another as the church, now hear this, are the basis for their mission in the world. In order for us to fulfill our collective calling in the world, we have to have a proper view of ourselves in relation to both the culture, but also to one another, the church. And Peter seeks to provide that, beginning in chapter 3 and verse 8. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic. Love one another, be compassionate and humble. Now he says finally in chapter 3 and verse 8, but if you're looking at your Bible, you see that there's a page or two after that in First Peter. It's actually five chapters long. So finally is clearly not the end of the letter, but rather it's the end of a section that speaks of our mission in the world, and we've been considering that over the last several weeks. Now, where does that section that's ending now, beginning with chapter 3 and verse 8 through verse 12, where does that start? It starts in chapter 2 and verse 11. Please take a look. Dear friends, verse 11 of chapter 2, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. And then the next verse, live such verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day He visits us. Those are the central verses of the entire five chapters that this is how we're to live as aliens and strangers, live such good lives, that there will be people who come to Jesus, and having come to Jesus will glorify God on the day He visits us because of what they see in us. And do you remember that Jesus said, By this will all men know you're my disciples, if you love one another, and Peter, who heard that the night before Jesus died. writes and says, finally, as I summarize then all of that, That mission for people in an onlooking world to see you and see something radically different in you, I summarize it by saying, all of you be like-minded, sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. So the section that begins in chapter 2 and verse 11, and it ends in our passage today, tells us what I have in your outline. I encourage you to take a look at the outline that's inserted in your program. First of all, Peter's reminding us that in order for us collectively, as God's people, as the church, to carry out our mission, we should treat the world, as as I say in the outline, as our temporary home. Now, why do I say temporary? Chapter 2 and verse 11, for which this passage is the conclusion, says, I urge you as aliens and as strangers... You have this kind of language throughout Scripture. When we covered that passage, I reminded you of things like what Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3, that our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are really passing through. We are sojourning through the world, but as we do that, God has given us a mission to carry out to show a radically different set of values such that there will be some in addition to us who are called out of the world and to Christ. verse 12 of chapter 2, live such good lives among, notice, the pagans. So does those who are still outside the the family of God, before whom we are to live these different kinds of lives as we sojourn as aliens and strangers. And the values of those pagans... Again, using Peter's word from verse 12 of chapter 2. The values of those outside the family of God, outside the people of God, outside the church, those values comprise what the Bible calls the world. Now, most of us, if we've been in church for any length of time, we've heard that. We've heard that the world is bad, that we should not be worldly. But very often we fail to define what we mean by world. We don't understand that but the world is not just what worldlings do because the truth is people in the world do some of the same things that we're called to do right they have jobs we have jobs they have families we have families very often they get it right because they're made in the image of god and they're the recipients of god's common grace and so you can't simply define the world in scripture which always has a negative connotation to it you can't define it simply as what the world does So then what is the world in Scripture? And why does it speak of it negatively? It's because it represents the values of the pagans. What they ultimately value. What is ultimately of worth to them. What they prioritize. And as a result of that, although there's overlap because of God's common grace and the way they live and the way we live, there's also a radical difference that stems from this difference in values. And that's why John said this in First John chapter 2. Do not love the world or anything in the world. Everything in the world. Now notice, it's the desires, the lust. and That's not just a sexual connotation. It's just the desires, the priorities, the values of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. They come not from the Father but from the world. And then John goes on to say this, the world and its desires. You all see that? You see, the world is these desires and these values and these priorities and it passes away. But whoever does the will of God, whoever pursues in his or her life the desires of God, lives forever. And that's why then, chapter 2 and verse 12, that central verse to the entire five chapters of First Peter says that we're called to live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day that He visits us. Now, where are they going to see then this difference? It's going to be a difference, yes, in our behavior, yes, a difference in the way we live, but it's going to stem from, it's going to be sourced in these radically different values that we... And it'll show up, yes, in us having families and them having families, but us pursuing them differently. Them having employment and us having employment, but pursuing it differently. Them living as citizens under the authority of a government, according to chapter 2 and verse 13, but pursuing it differently. They're to see a difference that makes a difference. But that difference is not first at the behavioral level, but it's first at the value level, the heart's desires. And so as we interact with those who are as yet outside the people of God, who we fervently hope and pray and seek to be used to bring them into, as we interact, let me, let me encourage you, friends, that we do not condemn behavior first. What I mean by that is you're interacting with your friends at work or in your neighborhood or family members who don't know Jesus, and you see what they do, do not be quick to condemn what they do. What you ultimately want to get at is what they believe and they value, which gives rise to what they do. And don't be surprised (laughs) at what worldlings do. Do not be surprised that the world lives like it. It should be no surprise to the world that we live like followers of Jesus as well. Have you ever noticed that in Scripture, the difference that we are to display is most often not in our religious activity? And we, we tend to think that. Well, people know I'm different because I go, I go to church on Sunday. Well, that's not where the Bible places the difference. To the world, that just looks stupid is strange. The the difference that's going to make an impact, according to Peter and the rest of the New Testament, is not seen primarily in our religious activity, which is just strange to the world, but rather, now hear this, in our radically different approach to common experience. And those common experiences are mentioned, chapter 2 and verse 13, in how we approach governmental authority. Chapter 2 and verse 18, in how we approach employment situations and adverse employment situations. In chapter 3 and verse 1 and also in verse 7, in how we approach domestic relationships in the home. So the difference is not what we most often think. I go to church, they don't. I read the Bible, they don't. I pray, they don't. The difference that they're to see and and is to make an impact is a radically different approach to common experience. Now, what does all that have to do with the church, our relationship as the body of believers, as God's people? Well, notice that Peter's conclusion to how this mission is carried out, this mission given in chapter 2 and verse 12, this mission is carried out as we treat the world as our temporary home, but it's aimed at our relationships with each other. Peter tells us in this whole section that we should treat the world as our temporary home, as aliens and strangers, with radically different values that will indeed show up in the way we behave, especially in these areas of common experience with the world. Treat the world as their temporary home, but I say secondly in your outline. Peter says in chapter 3 and verse 8 that we're to treat each other as permanent family. Treat the world as our temporary home, but treat each other as your permanent family. You say, yikes, really? (laughs) Yeah, we're stuck with each other. And not just for this life, for the next. When I say permanent, I mean permanent. And we chuckle, you know, when we say, yikes, but let's be honest now. In terms of our relationships with one another, they are often strained by the vestiges of our own sin nature. That's why one has said, you know, to live above with saints we love, well, that will be grace and glory. But to live below with saints we know, well, that's another story. And that is often and too often the way it is. But we are family, says the New Testament throughout, adopted into God's family. The language of being born again means that we have been born again into God's family and now have God as our Father. In chapter 1 and verse 23, Peter reminds us that we have been born again not of corruptible seed but of incorruptible seed, the imperishable seed. Word of God, says Peter. In chapter 2 and verse 9, Peter reminds us that we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, but we are God's special possession, His people, brought into His family to be His permanent family. In verse 8, again, I I have you look at chapter 3 and verse 8, finally, all of you do this, be like-minded. Be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Five things listed there. Like-minded and sympathetic, loving one another, compassionate and humble. Now, those those five things are arranged in a way that we're going to show you on the screen. Uh, In Greek and in the time of the New Testament, it was common to use a literary device called a chiasm, sometimes pronounced a chiasm. That's C-H-I-A-S-M. And what does that mean? Well, it's named after a Greek letter in the Greek alphabet, chi. And it's an X symbol. And sometimes literary passages will be arranged in a chiastic, or chiastic structure, like an X. And so it'll list one thing that attaches to another, and then another thing that attaches to yet a fourth, and then they will have as their nexus in the the middle what's most important. And that's what Peter has done here in verse 8 of chapter 3. He's listed these five things. Four of them are in pairs attached to each other, and then there is the middle and most important issue. And so like-minded is based upon humility, as we are going to see. In order for us to, Peter goes on to say, in order for us to be compassionate, we are, that is going to be based on being sympathetic with one another. And then in the middle of all of that, what ties it all together is the love that we are to have for each other. And that's why I say then in your outline, that we're to treat each other as permanent family if we're to carry out this mission that Peter is pointing us to and reminding us to we treat each other as permanent family and Peter is telling us then in conclusion this is how you how you do that you pursue a like-mindedness that's based on the humility the personal humility that you have and you pursue a compassion toward each other that's based upon the sympathy that you cultivate internally within yourself. And all of that is tied together in the middle of verse number 8 by the command to love one another. Now let's talk about that a bit. We're to treat each other as permanent family. And I say in your outline, here's what that means. It means we should treat each other with deference. Deference. We should defer, D-E-F-E-R. Deference. Treat each other with deference. Now why do I say that? Because... What Peter says is, we are to be like-minded. And the word that's translated like-minded is often translated, you could write next to that, if you taking notes, harmony. That we're to live in harmony with one another. But in the way he's written this, he said, in order for us to live in harmony with one another, it's going to have to be based on the humility that we bring to one another. The only way that we will be like-minded, not like-minded in our opinions, Peter is not saying that we should all have the same opinion about everything. But we're like-minded in our purpose, such that we're willing to set things aside, defer for the larger purpose. And he is saying we will only do that if we are humble people. A lack of humility will result in an exalted view of my opinion oh man, do we have an exalted view of our opinion? I have an exalted view of my opinion. And so do most of you. Some of us are loudmouths. Some of us are extroverts. Some of us talk a lot. So not only do we have a high view of our opinion, and we really believe everybody is entitled to our opinion, and we are happy to dispense it. And some of you are more introverts. And you may come off as not having such a high view of yourself. Ah, but God knows. Now, really, internally, in the deliberations we do within ourselves, think about this. How critical are you of others? Whether you say it or not, I could do it better, it should be done differently. Lack of humility will result in an exalted view of my opinion. Whether I speak it or not, a lack of humility will also result in criticism. Very often internal that most often becomes external. Humility begins with how you view yourself. And then in turn how you view others. And how does the gospel tell me to view myself? Romans chapter 12, Paul tells us, let none of you think of himself more highly than he ought to think. I came, you came to Christ with empty hands. By the grace of God, 1 Corinthians 15, the great apostle said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Humility is to be at the heart of the Christian experience. And yet most often for us, if we're honest, we are legends in our own minds. And therefore, we don't bring the humility to our relationships that the gospel requires. And therefore, we do not treat each other with the deference that permanent family is to look like. Peter is calling us to treat each other with deference. Internally cultivating humility, seeing ourselves vis-a-vis God and His holiness and His bounty and His goodness to us such that We are the grateful recipients of all we are and have and do not find ourselves criticizing and judging others quickly. We should treat each other with deference. Secondly, I say in your outline, we should treat each other with affection. Affection. Now, why do I say affection? Because this other pair of attributes that are to be true of the collective body, God's people, His church, all of us, says Peter in verse 8. These attributes include these two, sympathetic and compassion. I will only be compassionate toward you if I am cultivating internally a sympathetic view of others. Let's see, my pride, my pride gets in the way of sympathy, and where there is no sympathy there is no compassion Now, how does pride get in the way of my my sympathy huh. because i'm a self-made man or woman i did it why can't you you made your bed what you lie in it you are now reaping the consequences of that which you have chosen to do and on and on these haughty thoughts and words go. But where is the sympathy in looking at someone's circumstances and situations that says, this could well be me but for the grace of God. And therefore, I have sympathy. And as a result, can play that out now that internal cultivating of sympathy for the plight of another can be played out in my compassion. And I say this means treating each other with affection because it has to do with a heart attitude toward others. And so I ask you, friend, as I must ask myself, how do you view others? Particularly in this context, how do you view others in the body? How do you think about them? Is it with compassion or with sympathy, I should say, that results then in compassionate action? We should treat each other with deference. We should treat each other, says Peter, with affection. And in binding all of that together, at the nexus of all of this in verse number 8, is love one another. And so I say thirdly in your outline, we should treat each other with love. The great Apostle Paul said in Colossians chapter 3 this, As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. He goes on to say in the next verse, Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And then, having said all of that, this is what should characterize you as individuals and then your interactions collectively as God's people, the church. After all of that, he then goes on in the next verse to say this, and over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. And that is precisely what Peter is doing. He's saying there's to be this like-mindedness, this harmony amongst us, that is cultivated by by an internal attitude of humility. We are to be people that are characterized by compassionate action for one another. But that only happens as we cultivate sympathy in the way we think about one another. And at the heart of all of that is, as Paul said in Colossians 3, love. Now why? Because love always looks outward. Love always looks outward at the other person and what it is they need. That's why I've given you many times over the years this working definition of love. Love is doing what is in the best interest of another. And the common refrain in even Christian circles, certainly in secular circles, that we need to learn to love ourselves it's not something the Bible ever commands. In fact, the Bible says, Second Timothy chapter 3, that there will be perilous times that will come. People will be lovers of themselves. Okay? We got the love of self-thing down pretty well. The Bible never commands that. True love looks outward. And as love looks outward, it causes us to both now hear this: both appreciate others. And to identify with them in their plight, which is the very thing that these other four qualities are calling us to do. If we're going to be like-minded, then I'm going to have to have, and in in harmony in our relationship, I'm going to have to have an appreciation for you and what you bring. And if I have no appreciation for what you bring to the table because I have such a high view of my own opinion, then we will not be like-minded in our purpose and in harmony. And if I'm going to have compassion for you, or you for me, in your circumstances, in my circumstances, it's going to be because I, I seek to identify with where you are and see myself as potentially there as well, certainly. If I'm not there, it's not because I'm better than you. So Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 this do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit rather in humility value others above yourselves so as love looks outward it causes us to appreciate others so pause ask yourself as i must ask myself you know how do you view, how do you view other people in the body or just how do you view other people in general I mean, don't you just wish everybody was as smart as us? As smart as you, as smart as me. And love looks outward to appreciate what others bring, but also to identify with the situation of another first before judging them. Now, the Bible calls to evaluation. The truth is I can't help you unless I first evaluate you need help. Okay? So I have to make a judgment about that but we're talking about being judgmental here and having a holier-than-thou approach toward other people. And the Bible most definitely condemns that. We need to identify with the plight, the situation of another first before any judgment is rendered. The same word for sympathy that's used by Peter in chapter 3 and verse 8 is used of the Lord Jesus in this famous verse in Hebrews chapter 4. We do not have a high priest... Who is unable to, and there it is, sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet did not sin. Jesus made it a point, God the Son, God came from heaven to experience our plight. And we are being called to experience in our attitude, and our thoughts, putting ourselves in the shoes of others as best we can, the plight of those we're called to love. That means, in in a practical sense, a whole bunch of stuff that you'll be glad to know we don't have time to cover. But it means stuff like this. We will go out of our way to make excuses, not for ourselves, but for other people. Until the evidence absolutely demands otherwise. I encourage you to try to cultivate that approach toward other people. Think about where they are. Think about the shoes they fill. Think about from where they came. Think about what it is they are dealing with. Do everything you can to make excuses for them while we don't make excuses for ourselves. Cut them slack as you sympathize with their plight and their circumstances. C.J. Mahaney says if we're going to be a body of people that have this kind of humility, he wrote a book by that name, Humility. I think we have some copies in the Resource Center. And the Resource Center, people are cursing me right now as I speak for mentioning a book that we may or may not have. But it's a good book, a little book, Humility by C.J. Mahaney. He says, if we're we're going to be a body of people who does this and looks like this in our mission in the world, we need to do a few things. One, let me give those to you, look for evidences of grace in others. Look for evidences of grace. And if somebody knows Jesus, then there is always some evidence of grace in their life. Depending on where they are in their walk with Jesus, you may have to look for it. You may have to look at it kind of hard. But look for evidences of grace in the lives of others. Secondly, encourage others. Look at what, you know, the old catch somebody doing something right. And encourage them in what they do. Encourage them with with your words. And then thirdly, be a person who invites correction yourself. You make excuses for them, but you invite correction for yourself. In your relationships with others, say, I need your help to see me more clearly than I can see myself. And that displays an attitude of humility about yourself, hear this now, that will come in very handy when God calls you to be an instrument of change in the life of somebody else. Because you invite correction of yourself first. Look for evidences of grace in others. Encourage others. Invite correction. I wanted to spend and have spent our time primarily on verse number 8. Let's quickly show you the connection between then verse 8 and verses 9 through 12, and we'll, and we'll be done. But before we move to verses 9 through 12, just notice this one other thing in verse 8, and that is it says, finally, all of you. It doesn't matter what your position is. It doesn't matter what your age is. It doesn't matter how long you've walked with the Lord. There were those varieties of people in the churches to whom Peter was writing. But he says, all of you. And so I am encouraging you, dear brother and sister, as I have to admonish myself, nobody gets a pass on this. If you're part of God's church, you're part of this. You're part of this body, and you are called to examine your attitudes and your words and your actions in light of what Peter tells us in chapter 3 and verse 8. It should not be a harsh thing. It should be a blessed thing. Thank you, Lord Jesus, in your grace for saving me, calling me out of the world to yourself to be a part of the people of God, a part of your church, a part of the work that you're carrying out in your world in concert with these people. So that we, diverse though we are, from different backgrounds though we are, can show the love of God amongst ourselves by which all men will know we are your followers and they may see your good works and glorify God on the day he visits us. Lastly, in your outline, we should treat Christians as permanent family. We should treat non-Christians as potential family. Right. So who do you know among your non-Christian acquaintances that's beyond the reach of the mercy of God? Well, the answer to that is no one, but you and I sometimes think there are such people. No way. Too far gone. I have people in my, in my family, immediate and extended family, for whom the ravages of sin have gripped their lives and enslaved and entrapped. But none of them are beyond the reach of our gracious God. And all then non-Christians are potential family. And so beginning in verse 9, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Now, Peter is transitioning here now. Verse 8 is about the, the family. It's about Christians. And now this is about living in a hostile world and how you're received in that hostile society. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. Now that's in quotation marks. You all see that? That quote goes on. It's a quote from Psalm number 34 in the first part of of your Bible. When it says, if you would love life and you would see good days, if you're truly going to enjoy the ride, the journey as we sojourn as aliens and strangers on the mission that Jesus has given us, if you're truly going to enjoy that, then it's going to be very much dependent on how it is you approach people Yes, inside the body, but in particular, people outside the body who can be very often difficult to live with and in their circumstances and perhaps one day in ours has outright overt hostility toward you. Well, what do you do? You know, what we have tended to do is get angry. And the world knows we don't like them. We're angry at you for what you've done to our country and our society. And we come off that way, don't we? We act like politics is the solution to our country's problems when Jesus is the solution to our country's problems. If the Democrats win the next election, this country will be a mess. And if the Republicans win the next election, this country will be a mess. Either way. That's why Mike Huckabee used to be a Baptist preacher, by the way, when he was running for president. One of the things he said, he said, You know, I'm a conservative, but did you, ever hear, did you hear him say this? He says, But I'm not mad at anybody. Because that's the way we come off. And we are being called to live such good lives among the pagans, showing radically different values in these common experiences that we treat those who are outside the family as potential family. But it starts here. Charity begins at home. Charity or love begins at home. So I encourage you, dear friends, ask yourself, how do you treat members of the family? I will end with this. You can't do any of the stuff we're talking about unless you're involved with the family. You see, if you're a member of this church, you don't just attend community Bible church. You're a member of the family. You're to be an active, participating, interacting, relating member of this body. All of you, Peter says. So for some of you, that's where it begins. For others who are doing that, who are actively engaged, it means, as it does for me, an examination of my attitudes and my words and my actions toward others. Do I appreciate what they bring to the table? Do I identify with their circumstances? Because love always looks outward at their needs. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for this time together. The opportunity to consider the words of your servant Peter and how they impact upon us as your people. Lord, you have allowed us to be engaged in the most important work that is going on in the universe. Your work is carried on on this rock amongst all that you have created, calling people that you made in your image out of the world into yourself, and you're using us as your instruments in that great cause. Thank you for calling us out. Thank you for the grace you've given to us. Lord, help us then to be conduits, to be dispensers of that grace to others. May they see it then in the way we love one another, in the way we think about and talk about and interact with one another. Then may that be evident as we interact with those who are a potential family as well. May you be pleased to use Community Bible Church, the people that you have called out, to be a beacon in Trenton and beyond. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the take-home truth, (laughs) our relationships with one another prepare us for our relationships with others.